Earlier in this series, I did an interview with Captain Signa Oliver about what it was like to be a woman in the armed forces. It was a great interview. If you haven't listened, you should. But it made me realize that Signa's story is only one of about two million. It was poignant, powerful, and really opened my eyes. But it wasn't representative. She was an officer. And not just an officer, but a prosecutor. So we wanted to get more stories from women who served in the armed forces. As part of KJZZ's Women in the Community Speaker Series, we invited Captain Oliver and two other women veterans back to tell their stories. The first is Joanna Sweat. She's a former Marine Staff Sergeant who served in Iraq and Okinawa. The second is Jessica Morell, who served in the Army for eight years and currently serves as a chaplain in the National Guard. And, of course, the third is Captain Oliver. They all joined for different reasons, and they all served at different times in different services and had different roles in the armed forces. But they all served in the military during a time when women weren't as integrated as they are today. Women still couldn't serve in the infantry or on submarines like they can today. Join me and Lauren Gilger, the host of KJZZ's The Show, for a discussion about what it means to not just be a veteran, but to be a woman veteran. You're listening to Hear Arizona. Addressing issues, empowering our community. And uh, I want to introduce our three panelists today. Our first one is Joanna Sweat. She is a former staff sergeant in the United States Marine Corps. She served uh, from 1998 to 2007, including uh, tours of duty in Okinawa and Iraq. So welcome to Staff Sergeant Veteran Joanna Sweat. Our second guest is Signa Oliver. Uh, she served in uh, the United States Army back in the 1980s in the artillery. After getting out of the Army, she joined the Phoenix Police Department and then went to law school and then went back into the Army as a, a Judge Advocate General Officer. She uh, worked basically as a prosecutor in court martial cases. And then our third guest is Jessica Morell. She was a sergeant in the United States Army from 1997 to 2005. Uh, she served in Bosnia, Korea, Germany, and Iraq. So welcome to all three of you, and thank you all for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, welcome. What a, what a, what backgrounds. This is, uh, I'm excited to hear everything you have to say. I want to start with a real, uh, a kind of a broad question, but all of you entered the military, it sounds like, when women were, I think it's fair to say, less integrated into the armed forces than they are today. Um, and I want to just begin with a why question. You know, why, why did each of you take that path? What drew you to the military service? Um, why don't you begin, Joanna? Sure, thanks. Um, I grew up a military brat. My dad was in the Air Force, so um, I lived the military family lifestyle. Um, nobody ever um, engaged me about the potential of joining the service, and it was not ever a thought in my brain. Um, I was destined to be the next Mary Tyler Moore, um, and that was my future going to the city, um, but some things changed um, in my life right after high school. Um, I had a baby, um, my beautiful daughter, who's now 25, and I was um, kind of lost um, here in Arizona. I knew I didn't um, want to not do anything, which is what everybody kept telling me. It was like, your, your future is bleak. You're just a mom now. Um, 
And one day, a friend of mine um, who I went to high school with, another woman, um, made the decision to join the Marine Corps. And I had never heard of a Marine coming from the Air Force Army lifestyle. Um, and I went with her to um, what's called like a depth pool meeting. Uh, and I became quite enamored um, by the institution of the Marine Corps, its prestige. Um, if you ever see a Marine in their dress blue uniforms, it's just like out of this world. Um, and I was already kind of an alpha uh, personality. I was an athlete in school. And so they knew what to say to me at that time to really perk my interest. At, and so I found myself going down that uh, pathway quite haphazardly. <laughs> Let's hear from you next, Segna. Can you tell us your story a little bit about how you got into military life? Well, um, and thank you, Jojo, for your um, your remarks. She's an amazing woman, by the way. Um, well, I'm a third generation um, military person. I, I am the first woman in my family to serve in the military. And um, always you know had a great respect for those who served uh, my dad served i have brothers that served um, grand grandfather served so um when i was in um college i needed you know assistance with um going to school my mother um was a nurse and at the time you know i wasn't eligible for any financial aid so i thought you know, I can go in the military and, you know, get an, get the education I want and, and then, you know, um, further my career. I always wanted to be an attorney since I was about eight or nine years old. I was a judge in a, in a courtroom case in, in the third or fourth grade. So I had made my decision then. So I had to be educated to do that. So um, the first time I joined, I joined as an enlisted person and I was a telecommunications specialist and I had a top secret security clearance and I was out in the hot rat rig in the middle of nowhere, you know, listening to messages and I was assigned to a field artillery unit um, here in um, Arizona. And um, that was a that was a, a a different experience for a little, you know, Phoenix City girl. And um, then um, I as as um, Scott talked about when he was introducing us. Um, so I was a I was a police officer after that. Was worked for the police department, became an actual police officer for the city of Phoenix, and then at some point in time, I was married with two kids. I decided I'm not doing what I set out to do. Um, I want to be, you know, an attorney. So um, I quit my job and went to law school. And um, during our third years, when you're, you know, looking for a job. And we were in, I believe, Atlanta, and we were interviewing, and one of my best friends um, interviewed with um, the JAG Corps, um, the Army JAG Corps. And she's like, just interview with them. And I was like, well, I've already done about six years. I'm good. And I did actually talk to them. Well, they took me and not her, um, primarily because I was probably already acclimated, you know, prior military service and a third generation, you know, uh, Army person. So they took me and um, it was an amazing experience. I got the opportunity um, to serve. Um, we went to Fort, it's called Fort T. JAGSA, which is the JAG school for all the armed forces. 
on the um, campus of the University of Virginia. And I didn't know if anybody else in the Army knew about this because those were like Air Force quarters <laughs> and Army is not used to that. So, um, and then um, spent a few months at Fort Lee and then was shipped off to the home of the infantry, HUA, uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, where half my career, I was an administrative and civil law attorney um, where I practiced before the EEOC, the Merit System Protection Board, and I was um, a special assistant U.S. attorney for the middle of the District of Georgia. So I was a U.S. attorney um, representing uh, the United States military. And um, the other half, I was a prosecutor, as Scott talked about. Um, I um, prosecuted all kinds of criminal cases. I prosecuted the first HIV case in the United States Army and won and got the biggest sentence that that judge had ever given in his career and he was retiring. So um, I had an amazing career. Um, I was afforded amazing opportunities and I look back at that time and treasure that time. Thank you. Thanks, wonderful, Sarah. wonderful. All right, and so turn to you, Jessica, last for your kind of introduction to the to the military, and then we'll we'll toss it to Scott for some questions after that. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I was born in a small town here in Arizona, Miami, Arizona, which is about an hour east of the Phoenix area. And I knew there was two things that I wanted to do um, in my life. I knew I wanted to travel, and I knew I wanted to be an elementary school teacher. And um, I needed help being able to do that. And so a few of my friends had joined right out of high school into the military. And for me, it was just an opportunity to take advantage of the educational benefits as well as the opportunity to travel. And within the first year of joining the army, I was deployed to Bosnia. So I was on my way right away, being able to see uh, other parts of the world. Wow, yeah, wow. Okay, so we want to talk next about, which I think logically makes sense, talk about training, right? Um, Scott tells me that training changes you, and um, I'm going to toss this to him. I want to hear a little bit about your own experience in this, Scott, because you're also a veteran, and then we'll, we can uh, hear from, from, from some of our panelists as well. Go ahead. Yeah, so everybody who joins the military goes through training. They call it indoctrination because they are taking somebody who is a complete civilian and turning them into somebody who is ready to be in the military. So I'm curious, you know, how did training change each of you? You each described kind of your life before the service. When you go through training, how did you come out differently? And so Joanna, I'll start with you because we all know the Marines has pretty the, the most significant, you know, training, I would think. Definitely. Uh, I think we had the longest training and we call it recruit training, um, even not boot camp, because um, the Marine Corps likes to be, you know, extra different. Um, I would say that uh, I probably had a, a very unique um, indoctrination experience because of how I was raised. Um, so I have an immigrant parent. Um, my mother is from Korea. Uh, and so her style of discipline my whole life um, prepared me for the Marine Corps, definitely. Um, and then my dad, of course, having served in the Air Force and being a very regimented type of person, and he had served, um, you know, starting in the 60s and went to Vietnam twice. Um, so he, he had a, a very much different experience, um, even than those in garrison. Um, so for me, going to training, um, 
the mental part um, and the aggression um, was okay for me. Um, but where, what really changed me was um, the discipline and then um, opening up and understanding what a real team mentality is. Having played organized sports, I had always been a part of teams, um, but the teams that you have are far different. Um, you have a far different goal um, and your cohesion means everything, your survival even. And so um, that I think I thrived from a lot coming from uh, my childhood seeming isolated or having a, a traumatic uh, growing up experience versus my peers because of the cultural dynamics in my home. Um, but it did very much change me. It also um, really reinforced um, a lot of the feminist ideology I had already had about what women could in fact do. Um, and so I left boot camp extremely empowered um, and ready to take on the world. All right, uh, Signa, how about you? Well, I was the youngest of five and I was the very youngest of five. I was the oops kid and I was very spoiled, came from a different background where I was spoiled and sheltered. And my entry into um, boot camp, I was at, um, I started Fort Jackson and we enter, ended up um, in Fort Gordon, Georgia. And I, I was in shock at first, and, but I was always taught to be, you know, try to be strong, you know, even though I was pampered. And I went from this pampered little spoiled girl to a squad leader, um, we had, um, and this is uh, basic training as an enlisted person. We had um, four companies and one was a female only company at the time because it was in the 80s. And I became one of the leaders, one of the squad leaders. Um, I was able to, you know, pull on some inner strength that I had no idea that I had um, before. And um, to JoJo's point, I um, came out very empowered very strong, um, very certain of everything I, I wanted to do and who I wanted to be. And the officer training was impactful as well because it was very different from the enlisted training. Um, first and foremost, the different level of, you know, respect that you get as an officer just because, you know, you have a bar or a couple of bars on your, your collar was different. But it gave me a different perspective about the people I served with earlier and gave me a big respect um, in that officer training for the people I would be working for, working with and commanding, which were the NCOs and enlisted people. All right, thank you, Signa. And how about Jessica? So very similar to both Signa and uh, Joanna, it's the empowerment and really getting to the bottom of what I am made out of was really something that I learned about myself while I was in, in basic training. And I had the unique opportunity, kind of like what Cigna is saying, I went in as an 18-year-old, served for eight years, had a 15-year break in service, and then went back into the military at the age of 42 and went back to basic training again for the new job that I was being trained for. So um, when I went in the second time, um, now having four children and, and lived, you know, a whole life 
and going back into basic training, getting yelled at all over again, what I noticed differently was number one, that I already knew what I was made out of. So the fear of what was gonna happen was completely taken away from me. Not that it made it easier and not that uh, you, know, you ever get used to being yelled at. Um, however, I knew what we were working towards. And so because of that, I really embraced the second experience. And I think it also helped that we were all having to wear masks. And so I could hide a lot of my giggling of some of just the uh, absurdness of being yelled at by someone half my age. However, you know, I learned so much in that second experience and, and what we learn about ourselves, you know, it stays with us. And so even though I certainly wasn't the fastest one in my class at the age of 42, <laughs> I, I, I held my own and, and did what needed to get done because I knew I was made of that. Quitting wasn't an option. I had three teenage daughters watching my every move. You think I was gonna come back home, <laughs> not you know, succeeding at, at what I was sent to do. So uh, that was really um, what I think changed most about me was just the mindset that's carried me the rest of my life. Yeah. Uh, no so I want follow up. Yeah, sorry, Scott, let me just jump in. I want to follow up with each of you real quickly on this because you each sort of talked about, um, I think even, even Joanna, you said this very quickly, like you came out of it more of a feminist, like your feminist ideology was brought forth. You found your own powers within yourselves. I wonder like if you can expand on that um, and just tell us about, about why it seems odd because you're in this, in this institution that especially at the time was not equal at all. Um, did you feel that or did you feel like you could earn your place in it? Like, how did you come to a place where you felt more in touch with, with your feminism? Um, I think for the Marine Corps, when I joined, it was a little bit different experience, maybe even for Cigna and Jessica, in that um, just until last year, the Marine Corps kept women and men completely separated in that training cycle. Like, you don't look, you don't see each other. Um, and so my experience going to Paris Island was, which is where they only trained women Marines at the time at 4th Battalion, where my entire leadership um, and chain of command were female hats, except for when I went to a classroom, I might have a male drill instructor in there. Um, but generally, it was this all woman environment. And so to see women on all different levels at all different um, shapes, sizes, backgrounds, experiences, um, and, and just um, capabilities and being able to um, watch that succinct growth in all of us from day one to that last day. Um, and having grown up in the era that I grew up where it was like, girls can never do what boys can do. Or if you do, then maybe you're just a little bit more exceptional. Or um, you can play girls sports, but then we'll, we'll organize you over here. And, and so everything was very separate. Um, and the messages I always got growing up was that girls were just a little bit less than guys. Um, and leaving boot camp, and I knew that to not be true, right? I was racing boys, I was beating them at sports, and I was like, I'm not the only one. Um, and so graduating from boot camp and being around that many women and, and idolizing the women that trained me um, and not having seen that anywhere in my life before, you know, where women were, had such power, such prestige um, and honor in what they were doing, 
And it just solidified like those dreams that I had that what I knew to be true is that women are, you know, this powerful force. And if, you know, we had the same opportunity, we, we might be further along um, than we really truly are. Um, and so leaving that experience, I really did feel that um, through and through it and, and tried to carry that on throughout my career as things changed, as I integrated, of course, um, and different, I got different messages. Um, but in those moments, um, you couldn't tell me anything. I, I remember walking around on Bootley for 10 days straight with light tank tops because I wanted everybody to see my muscles, you know, and, and, and see what I had become. And then to, to tell a man or, you know, anybody that I was a Marine, you know, was just, it just gave me a lot of power. Uh, I want to I want to toss this to Scott because you also served in the military, but in a in a obviously from a different perspective. You know what was it like? Um, what were your perceptions, experiences of serving with women um, before you know everything sort of changed when Obama changed things and allowed women into combat units, et cetera? Well, again, I'll say you know the military was probably 85, 90% men, even when I was in in the uh, late 2000s, 2009 to 2014. And I remember distinctly going to the rifle range one day to qualify. And I struggled, you know, I'd never really shot a rifle before. And I shot a, you know, the minimum score to pass. And nobody really gave me a hard time. But I know that if a woman shot the minimum score to pass, she would probably get a pretty hard time about that. Um, there are also, you know, stories about, you know, if a man got hurt right before deployment, very few people would say, oh, he's just getting hurt to get out of deployment. But if a woman got pregnant, you know, even eight months before a deployment, there would be the whole, oh, she just got pregnant to get out of deployment. So, you know, I'm curious, what was it like for you all being in that hyper-masculine environment where, you know, you probably had to work harder to prove yourself? And, uh, you know, Cigna, speaking to you, I think I remember you having a specific story about going <laughs> to qualify at the rifle range. Yeah, I had several different experiences, but um, I am competitive to the nth degree. Um, so in basic, um, I wouldn't run with the women's um, company. I ran with the men. And I even passed out one time because I overheated and woke up with my drill sergeant in my face uh, telling me not to run with the men. And the next time we ran, I ran with the men again because I wasn't going to be defeated. Um, what the, the what Scott's referring to is um, I shoot expert. Um, I you know I'm I'm an ex cop. I was in the military before, so I was very familiar. By the time I got to Fort Benning, the home of the infantry HUA, if you can imagine that. And um, I go out to the range, and there's a lot of sergeant majors and command sergeant majors out there, and I'm a female and a JAG officer, you could imagine what they thought about me. They're like, oh, this is going to be comedy central. So, you know, the, the range master comes out and he hands me the weapon and he's like, so there's going to be some targets pop up and you should try to knock them down as they pop up. And I'm thinking, okay. And so I've got a crowd behind me. I have a whole audience behind me because they're going to get the ever gotten watching this female JAG officer try to knock these targets down. So the whistle goes off. I've got my, my ear protection, my eye protection on, and I am laying those targets down as they pop up. And, you know, there's complete silence, you know, and I even 
you know, when he handed me the weapon, I was like, should I hold it like this? You know, if you're going to treat me like a woman, let's play the game. And I felt like a pool shark, you know, pulling somebody in because it's like this dude is really out of his league. And so when it was over, he comes up and I take my ear protection off and he goes, ma'am, you're a ringer. And I was like, never assume, Sergeant, never assume. So I walked back through the whole um, gang of sergeant majors and command sergeant majors. And one asked me, he said, uh, ma'am, are you married? And I said, no. He said, because I was going to tell him, don't mess her dead on and so it was it was fun it was great and you know those were the challenges you know i had to score to scott's um um statement i had to score a hundred percent on everything especially at the home of the infantry i had to be i was an officer and i was a female and i was a jag officer so i literally would starve myself so i didn't have to be taped because i'm an officer and I'd make 100% on the run, on the push-ups, on the sit-ups, because I had to have that standard. So that's my story. <laughs> so uh, there was a question in the chat. Um, basically, you know, the message that women got in the military was they had to be twice as good to be considered equal. And uh, Jessica and Joanna, I'm curious if you experienced that. You know, you have to be twice as good as a man to be considered equal. Um, you know, Jessica, we'll start with you. Did you experience anything like that when you were? Well, um, for me, I um, definitely noticed that. And because I was not the strongest and not the fastest, what I had to really find out really quickly during my training is how I could use the gifts that I did have to rise up in leadership. And so for me, um, because I'm not competitive, because I'm not, uh, you know, have that urge to like win all the time, um, what I had to find out was how can I still be impactful and, and what we call a, a force magnifier um, with the gifts that I do have. And so for me, I recognized really quickly that I did have a really strong mindset. And so that was really helpful for me in encouraging other people to um, not get discouraged when they felt like, especially the females, like when they felt like they weren't getting the recognition or they felt like they weren't gonna make it. And then the second part that I, I really recognized that um, I was really good at was building community and like encouraging community within our platoon. And through those things is how I was able to kind of uh, be in leadership without necessarily being the fastest <laughs> or the quickest and and, um, and I was an all right shot even in, in, at the rifle range but in my new job that I'm in now in the Arizona National Guard um, we're non-combatant so we don't carry weapons so I'm really glad that I don't have to <laughs> worry about qualifying on a on an M16 anymore. Joanna, what about you? I know the Marine Corps is probably the most competitive and the most uh, you know masculine so did you experience kind of the same Definitely. Um, I remember um, specifically PFT time. And so um, I real had, quick, the PFT is the uh, physical fitness test for those of you. That, yeah. And so when you're getting ready to go out there, it's like uh, your company or your whole squadron or, you know, whoever has to go out and, and qualify, you know, you're, you're set up so you can hear everybody talking. Um, and most people are like kind of pointing out people and, and wagering, you know, who's going to come in last, who's going to have to get on a vehicle. And so having 
heard that, you know, all the time in the background um, and seeing people be, it makes you, you know, definitely never want to put yourself in that place. And so um, it made me probably overtrain a lot, um, not eat very well <laughs> and, and, and take um, things like I had to try another, I, I had my two sons while serving. And so knowing that I was pregnant and already stigmatized and wanting to come out of pregnancy at the gate 100%, you know, there were a lot of unhealthy practices that I partook in, um, like taking rip fuel or, or things of that nature, you know, postpartum um, just to, to compete. And so that definitely was a thing, like you, you had to be above average if you were a woman Marine or you were gonna be talked about incessantly. Um, and I never understood that because uh, in the Marine Corps, there's far more men than there are women. Like it's even grossly more exaggerated in our branch of service being the smallest. And so there are a lot of men who don't, you know, who are all the way down on the third tier and nobody talks about them in that way at all. But if you're a woman, you know, you're, you're going to be talked about, even if you, you pass, you know, but, uh, and then it's even worse if something's wrong with you, um, like some of the other ladies had expressed, like if you get sick or you have a sprained ankle. Uh, I, I know women who graduated boot camp on two broken ankles um, because they refused to tell people that. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was very much competitive. And, and the same with in the Marine Corps, they send you to a lot of different schools. And so there's like the top female and then the top male of the class. And so, you know, all the women are, are vying to be that top female, um, which could also make it a very stressful environment. Um, so the competition was very serious and how they categorize women in the Marine Corps uh, was vicious. And so you didn't wanna be in any category that wasn't in the top tier. So I want to then ask you each, um, I, this is a little bit of a speculative question, but I think it might say a lot. I mean, things have changed, right? Like opportunities for women have, have expanded greatly in the military. They can now serve in nearly, you know, every job, every unit. It's, it's not like it was probably when you were all there. If you could go back in today, you know, would you, would you, would you, would you do that? And would you hope it would be more equal, a little less of these, um, you know, sort of challenges that you feel like you faced just because you were women. Let's um, let's start with you, Signa. Uh, um, well, that's a great assumption that you can do different jobs and you can, but I don't know that it's changed so dramatically for women. Um, the thought process. I don't. I don't. That's not what I'm hearing from people that are in. Um, it's kind of the same thing still happening, um, even though more opportunities are open to you, it's still, you know, to some degree, not, not as severe, I guess, as when I was in there, but to some degree, um, it is, you know, still some of those same because it's society, it's a microcosm of society. Um, so, you know, and, until we reach that plane where people are just seen as human um, and just people, we won't, um, get there but would i do it again now um and i'm not this age yes i would absolutely do it again um it was it was a good time i i reflect on it 
you know, even with the challenges, because life is a challenge, even with the challenges, I reflect on it and I think good thoughts. Um, let's go to then Jessica next and we'll end with Joanna on this one. So I actually did go back into the military after a 15 year break in service, as I mentioned earlier. And there was a few reasons um, for me going back in. I felt deeply called. Um, so I'm, I'm in the chaplain candidate program with the Army, uh, the Arizona National Guard. And one of the reasons I felt called to go back into the military had to do with the lack of chaplain representation for women. Um, one of the um, one of my battle buddies while I was in service um, was raped and it has just deeply impacted my, my work in the community with women and men who've experienced military sexual trauma. And one of the things that she said to me that just has just stayed with me was that she didn't reach out to anybody because she couldn't find a female chaplain. And so that was one of the things that was a motivating factor for me to go in as well as also wanting to be a part of the culture that's changing military sexual trauma. Um, and since I have left the service the first time when I was in, uh, there has been an increase in programs um, and support and change in protocol to address these types of situations. Um, and here in Arizona, specifically, our highest ranking Arizona National Guard, uh, two-star general, uh, Carrie Mullenbeck, she's a major general of Carrie Mullenbeck, um, is a female. And so for me, I am seeing in, in what I'm doing right now, I'm seeing great hope for female leadership. Um, and when I'm at drill weekends, um, you know, we have a command sergeant major in my unit, female. Um, and so I'm seeing a lot of high ranking women around me, which encourages and inspires me uh, so much so that when my 17 year old daughter came to me and said she wanted to join the military, I felt hopeful that the military that she was stepping into, although we know it's not perfect. And of course, just like any organization has a lot of work to do. I felt good that I was able to tell my daughter, yes, honey, I think this is a great decision that you're making and she has joined the Air National Guard and she leaves for basic training on Tuesday. Uh, the, that, is a, that is a great segue. I wanna go to Joanna on this question next and then I'm gonna ask you another question on that, <laughs> Jessica. So Joanna, first um, answer that last question for us about whether you would go back in today. Yeah, I think um, even with all my traumatic experiences in the service, um, it it was such a pivotal time in my life that I, I would never want to erase it. And I would definitely do it again um, if I had the chance. If I had the chance to do it again and being smarter um, about it, like, like Jessica has, and I'll tell you, I've, I've been friends with Jess for, for many years. Um, and when I saw the announcement that she was doing it, it it just tickled me because I know her and I, I know like that motivation under there was like, oh my God, this girl is going back and she's going to change some shit, you know, like, and that's what I love about the women that I've served with is that we, we don't forget where we come from. We work really hard to make the changes and strides. Um, and I'm so proud that her daughter is joining this service and and I even feel confident that, you know, 
we're we're more aware as a society. And even though those problems still exist, and uh, I'll tell you, it made me nervous if if my daughter ever asked me back when she was growing up, and thankfully she never did. Um, but I think it was probably because I was too open with her about my traumas um, that I sustained. Um, and also the world has been topsy-turvy um, since they've grown up, but um, it, it does bring me hope. And, and I have a lot of women that um, I mentor that are still serving um, because I want to stay connected to that community. Um, and I wanna make sure that it's getting better. Um, and they're reporting back, you know, like, they see us veteran women in advocacy. And so now they advocate for themselves in service. And so I've seen great strides specifically for women in the Marine Corps um, as it relates to weight standards that have grossly you know, debilitated women's lives post-service um, because of the standards that they're held to, especially women of color um, that come from different cultural environments. Um, and the things that they've had to sustain based on that kind of body morphia that you get in the military. And even that's changing. Like they have focus groups, they're bringing women in to make those changes, not bringing a bunch of men in to talk about us, you know? So I am hopeful, um, but like um, Justin Cigna said, we, we are a sector, we are a small visual of what's happening across the, the world, you know? Um, we're that example and, and so, all the things that we need to fix in the service or all the still things that we need to fix, you know, in our nation. And so as we get better, it will, it will only get better. And I'm hopeful that it will. I appreciate all of your optimism. I want to end with, with a final question and then we'll turn to a few audience questions. Um, so two of you have now said you would, you would, it sounds like have different answers to your daughters if they asked you whether they, they wanted to go in today. What do each of you think still needs to change? What would you like to advocate for? And, and I mean, Jessica, you mentioned, you know, sexual trauma. Joanna, you mentioned, you know, women of color being in a specific position. I mean, what are what are some of the issues that you think still need to be addressed? Do you want to begin there, Signa? Uh, sure. Um, the same things that are in society, I think, need to be addressed. You know, um, just um, realizing that everybody is human and treating everybody as human beings. You know, Jessica, hats off to you. Um, one of my favorite people at Fort Benning was a female chaplain, and she was an amazing person, which I'm sure you are. Um, but, you know, just having the, the look-see um, when there are issues, because just as in society, you know, in, in the military, you know, you're, you're that smaller sector of society, and you still do see those you know, issues of, you know, sexual abuse and that sort of thing, they have to take those things seriously. And that has to be, you know, fully investigated. And women need to know that they can report those things and be heard and be given to them. I did prosecute a, a military service member for um, raping another service member's child and he was let off and i'm sure hopefully that's not the case anymore but one of the panelists after the because that was the only one i lost they did they put him out for something else they would not convict him and even the the um, defense attorney came and said you know you beat me all over that courtroom but one of the panelists came to my office afterwards and it was a, a high-ranking um nco and he said ma'am we're going to put him out 
we just wouldn't convict him. And I, I, that, just, that just tore me apart, um, that you knew he was, he was guilty of the crime that we charged him with and we proved, but you're going to release him on society so he can further violate women. I hope that's got, that's got to change, and I hope it does change. But that was the situation while I was in it, and that was a pivotal moment that made me get out. Because wow. I'd lost honor there. Wow. Uh, let me turn to you, Joanna, next, and we'll end with uh, with Jessica on this one. Can you restate the question again? I'm wondering what it is that you think still needs to change uh, going forward. Um, I think some of the things um, that they're doing as far as um, the integration piece is big. So keeping women and, and men separate, and then then forcing them to have to work together when we're in these forever wars is, was not a good you know idea to begin with um and in an all-volunteer force um and knowing that women are capable physically and mentally to do um, any job in the military um i think that will fast track um a lot of change because what was happening before is that they were like, okay, we're going to flood women into the service, but then they can only get these types of roles. And so then you're still looked at as kind of like a subsect, not really fully integrated. Um, so now that we're flooding into the combat roles, now that we have full opportunity to participate in all these different units, um, I think as that grows and the population of women grow to serve, it will only improve, but that also means that those women have to have the same opportunity to excel and be put in leadership positions. Um, I served from 1998 until 2007, and I never had a woman leader over me, never. Um, they were either my peers um, or one rank you know, below me or above me, you know, as we were both working our ways up, but I never had a woman that I could turn to. Um, and a lot of the trauma that I had, I, I really could have used women leadership. And I think that's something that the military should focus on and where they place people and ensuring that there's representation for your entire unit at your unit and not um, isolated. Uh, and then another example of that is, um, when I came back from the war in Iraq, I every if you're going to sustain a career, you take a B billet, and I was put on recruiting duty, and then again I was sent uh, to a state off, you know, kind of post command away from like the military industrial complex, and I was one woman in a unit of sixty recruiting men who had all come from infantry units who were not really supervised, um, and so it was a very scary time for me. Um, just in that setting. And so there are a lot of spaces that we don't think about in the military um, that are not just, you know, getting ready to deploy and go to war, that we need to ensure that there's representation and, and somebody, an ally, you know, everywhere that you are. And then obviously the legislation and the protocol that takes um, what crimes do happen in the military out of the hands of commanders? That to me just doesn't make any sense um, because we already know there's a lot of nepotism and things that are happening in the United States military that doesn't, you know, um, fare well when it comes for adjudication processes. And so those are issues that are still being fought through legislation, 
Um, but I think that's why we need to share more of our veteran stories with the American populace, because I think they just hear about the military and veterans and kind of the hero work and they're just told, thank you for your service and honor us. But we have real problems um, and problems that they could help us fix faster if they're engaged with what needs to be happened legislatively for our lives to improve in the service. Really interesting. All right, and Jessica, final word on this one, and then we'll turn to Scott with a few audience questions. Well, I think Joanna and Signet basically covered everything that I would say regarding representation. And as Joanna was speaking about the legislation that, that changes uh, the protocol for, for crimes that happen and taking it out of the chain of command. I just remember in Iraq, um, it was an all male command staff while we were there. And, um, you know, it was a difficult deployment. And I think that having a female represented, represented in our leadership, I think would have, have been important in um, some of the challenges that, that occurred while we were deployed. Um, it's a miserable deployment to begin with, especially uh, when I was there back in 2003 when things had first started. And so um, just representation and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I currently am seeing great representation of, of women in high ranking uh, leadership roles and, um, and my daughter, uh, she chose a job uh, as a hydraulic systems maintenance for aircraft and, you know, in, in her shop, um, a lot of men and she's going to be surrounded probably by a lot of men, uh, maybe because women may not necessarily care for that field. I don't know what it might be, but she's absolutely interested in it. And so I hope that by her going into this shop and, 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 and sharing with her friends what she's doing um, and, and you know, her bigger dream of being a pilot you know, and, and this being a pathway for her, I hope that her story and even my story is you know, Hispanic women in the military. I do try to share on social media um, what I'm doing mostly because um, we have to see it. And if we don't see it, um, we don't know it's possible. And so as I have young nieces and nephews and godchildren, um, you know, that are watching what I'm doing, I, I want them to see what's possible. Yes, I, I will have to leave it there. Um, we're, we're about out of time here. I could keep going. And I'm sure Scott has more questions for you. And we didn't get to every audience question. What a wonderful discussion. Um, so much. Uh, I appreciate about all of your perspectives and, and your stories. Thank you so much for sharing and for, for doing this with us. Thank you to Scott for producing the podcast and of course for lending your perspective and expertise today and thank you to all of you for joining us thank you for for being a wonderful audience and uh, hopefully we'll be able to do these things in in person again one day but nice to, <laughs> nice to have you all here thank you again here arizona is a production of the division of public service at rio salado college which includes sun sounds of arizona spot 127 kbach and kjzz this podcast series is made possible by a grant from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust and support from listeners like you. Thank you. This episode was produced, written, directed, and hosted by Scott Bork. Linda Pastore is our executive producer. Thanks for listening.